And it came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 7, The Akedah and Us. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the 1950s, a remarkable exchange took place between two clergymen, respectively representing different faiths. A Roman Catholic priest in Boston by the name of Reverend James Walsh was intrigued by a Jewish redemption ritual called Pidyon Haben, in which the father of a firstborn son, a month following the baby's birth, presents the child to a Kohen, a descendant of Aaron. The parent then redeems the child with several silver coins given to the Kohen, and the child is returned to him. Reverend Walsh wrote to Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik inquiring about the ritual's spiritual significance. The rabbi could have ignored the inquiry, but instead he wrote in return, suggesting that the key to the parental right could be found in a terrifying Abrahamic tale, one known to the priest as much as the rabbi. This remarkable letter was largely unknown for decades. Now published, it enlightens all of us about the Bible's approach to parenthood itself. After informing Abraham, their gracious host, that he and his wife would have a child, the Almighty's angelic emissaries, or at least two of them, turn now to the city of Sodom, intending to destroy it while also saving Abraham's nephew, Lot. The entire tale of Lot is itself a striking study of a man who has been impacted by Abraham, his uncle, but only partially. Lot, too, like Abraham, eagerly hosts the angels as his guests before he is aware of their identity, illustrating that he has imbibed some of his uncle's graciousness. Yet at the same time, when a mob surrounds Lot's house, demanding that the angels be given over to them, Lot offers his daughters to the mob in order to appease them. He is clearly unqualified to serve in the parental role designated for the first patriarch. It is Abraham's qualifications as father that is the foundation of the Abrahamic election. And the Almighty himself says so when he decides to discuss his decision to destroy Sodom with Abraham. Genesis 18.17 And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I am doing, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the world shall be blessed in him? For I have known him, because he will command his children and household after him, that they keep the ways of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Abraham's fatherhood, then, is intended to ensure the perpetuation of God's path and to thereby bless the entire world. What does that tell us about fatherhood? This is a question that we are called to consider. Isaac is born and weaned, but he has an older brother, and that is a problem for Sarah. Genesis 21.9 And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne unto Abraham, making sport. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this maidservant and her son, for the son of this maidservant shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight on account of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight, because of the lad and because of thy maidservant. In all that Sarah saith unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for an Isaac shall seed be called to thee. And also of the son of the maidservant will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away, and to truly appreciate this story, we turn to a somewhat unusual biblical commentator. Neither a rabbi nor an academic, neither clergy 
nor intellectual exegete. He is the artist Rembrandt von Rehn, and it is, I believe, essential to see many of the stories in Genesis through his eyes. A link to Rembrandt's etching of this story has been provided to you, but ladies and gentlemen, if you are listening to this podcast while driving, please do not look it up now. We see in Rembrandt's etching how Abraham regretfully forces Hagar to depart as the latter weeps. Watching from the window, Sarah seems absolutely unperturbed, yet Rembrandt adds an element. The door to Abraham's home stands slightly ajar. There, in the shadows, the figure of a small boy can be discerned. It is the child, Isaac, gazing forlornly as his brother departs. Rembrandt places Isaac in the picture, well aware that it is on account of him that Ishmael is banished. Rembrandt asks a question which seems to have occurred to no one else. What is it like for Isaac? What is it like to see your brother with whom you have grown up, expelled from your home, never to return, and to know that he's being sent away because of you? Rembrandt thus provokes us to ponder Isaac and Ishmael's relationship. We are informed by the Bible of Ishmael's transgression. He was making sports. The term in Hebrew, mitzachek, is ambiguous. And the assumption of some rabbinic readings is that it refers to some awful action, such as idolatry. And this may indeed be so. Yet the simple meaning of the text may be that making sport was a form of mockery or perhaps some lewd behavior on the part of a teen. Read this way, a flaw in Ishmael's character may be manifest, revealing him to be an inappropriate influence on Isaac, but he is not egregiously evil. God informs the patriarch that in Isaac shall be your seed. This means not only that Isaac will inherit Abraham's estate, but also that he will be the sole medium of spiritual covenantal transmission, and therefore he cannot be unduly influenced by his older brother. For the future of the covenant, Ishmael and Isaac had to be separated. But Rembrandt sees in this story not the banishment of an unrepentant reprobate, but as the parting between a morally problematic teen and his younger brother. One can further suggest that precisely because Ishmael is not thoroughly evil, therefore his banishment seems so wrong to Abraham. But the Almighty insists that the continuity of the covenant overrides Abraham's own parental love. We are therefore, even before the story of Isaac continues, called to consider at this point the question of to whom, for the Bible, children truly belong. If there is anything, of which we are possessive in life, it is our children. And yet, ultimately, to believe that children are the greatest gift of God is to believe that ultimately they belong to God. We often ignore this in our lives, but it is true all the same. If it is not too irreverent to again cite The Simpsons, I would take note of a moment where Homer, the father in this show, is asked not to take out his frustrations on his children. And he replies something like, why not? They're my kids, I own them. And when his wife shows disapproval of such a statement, he says, fine, we own them. But for the Bible, we do not own our children. They are God's gift. They are God's. Thus, when the divine command overrides Abraham's possessive love for his older child, this must have impacted the way that he saw Isaac as well. Rembrandt hints this to us in another etching, one of an old man sadly clutching a child to himself, an image often identified as the elderly Abraham with his young son Isaac. Though this child is a miracle, nevertheless, as the artist Richard McBee puts it, Abraham's gaze, quote, is a curious mixture of tenderness and paradoxical sadness. Suddenly, McBee further writes, we know why he looks out at us rather than at his beloved son. We know how God will test him in the years to come. 
we understand how God had already tested Abraham with the promise of a son who would inherit the holy covenant with God. Abraham had been patient and was finally rewarded with his son in his old age. And yet, as the boy grew, Abraham must have known that the testing was not over. End quote. This is exactly right. And what is also striking about this image is the way that Abraham, with one hand, tightly clenches Isaac to himself, thereby inspiring us to ponder how we relate to our children. The standard form of showing love to our children is through an embrace. The act is possessive in nature, drawing them close to us. I do it all the time, and the possessiveness of it is what makes it wonderful. But traditional Jews also have another mode of interaction with their progeny. Many Jewish parents, often on Friday evening before the start of the Sabbath meal, place their hands on the heads of their sons and daughters and bless them. Those who see this ritual for the first time find it immensely moving, as indeed it is, but it is also the opposite of an embrace. Rather than draw our children close, we extend our hands to them and thereby set them apart, indicating that they belong to someone other than ourselves. Rightly understood, the act of blessing stresses first and foremost not the bond between parent and child, but rather between the child and God. In the Bible, the one ritual comparable to the Jewish act of blessing is, shockingly, sacrificial in context. The worshiper in the tabernacle and temple, according to Leviticus, placed his hands on an animal's head before the ritual occurred, thereby dedicating the animal to God. In a similar sense, to place one's hands on a child is to acknowledge the Almighty's ownership and consecrate him or her to divine service. The parallel between biblical blessing and sacrifice is rarely considered, but it is exactly what is raised to us in one of the most haunting of biblical tales, which presents itself to us in chapter 22. And it came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham complies, bearing Isaac to Mount Moriah, binding him to an altar, giving us thereby the traditional Jewish name for this moment, the Akedah, the binding. But why does God order Abraham to engage in such an action? Here we turn to Rabbi Soloveitchik's letter to Reverend Walsh. At the heart of the religious worldview, the rabbi wrote to the priest, is the absolute ownership by the divine of the world. Man, as Rabbi Soloveitchik put it, is merely, quote, a guardian in whose care the works of God have been placed as a precious charge, end quote. Children, Rabbi Soloveitchik further wrote, are the greatest and most precious charge God has entrusted to man's custody, end quote. But he adds that the fact that they do not belong to us is, in his words, the irrevocable, though bitter truth. The Akedah, Rabbi Soloveitchik suggests, must be understood in this context. For Abraham to deserve fatherhood, he had to acknowledge that he was merely a custodian of the child for whom he had longed. Thus, the Almighty's angel intervenes in verse 12, before the sacrifice can conclude, and God tells Abraham as follows, And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. God's intended result at the Akedah was not Isaac's death, but rather Abraham's recognition of the true nature of parenthood. And that, Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote, is precisely what is recognized by Jewish parents throughout the generations in the ritual that so piqued the curiosity of the priest. I quote now only a few parts of this extraordinary letter. The ceremonial of redemption of the firstborn son 
reenacts the drama of Abraham offering Isaac to the Lord. The father of today, as Abraham of old, acknowledges the absolute ownership of the child by God. He renounces all his illusory rights and urgent claims to the child. When the Kohen returns the child to the father and accepts the five shekels, he presents him on behalf of God with a new child. Something precious is re-entrusted to him. The dialectical drama of Mount Moriah consisting in losing and finding a son is restaged in all its magnificence. After receiving the child from the Kohen, the father must always remain aware that it was only through God's infinite grace that this infant was returned to him in sacred trust. So Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote to Reverend Walsh, Abraham is exquisitely aware after the Akedah that Isaac lives by God's grace, and we too as parents are called to see all those we love in a similar manner, not as possessions, but as sources of obligation and sanctification. We are all too apt to avoid the Akedah's relevance to us, but these passages are painfully relevant to our lives. Tim Russert describes how, when he worked for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he once prepped the Senator for a TV interview, saying to him that when a sensitive question came up, he should change the subject and talk instead about the World Series. But Moynihan, an intellectual, had no idea that the New York Yankees from his own state were actually in the World Series. The television interview begins, and Moynihan suddenly, fluently speaks of baseball, saying, if the Yanks don't win today, Torres, meaning Yankee pitcher Mike Torres, will win on Tuesday. After the interview, Russert asked Moynihan how he knew about Torres, and Moynihan explained that he was sitting in the green room before the interview when a child entered wearing a Yankee hat. And Moynihan asked the kid if the Yankees would win, and the child replied, I don't know, mister, but if they lose today, Torres will win it for them on Tuesday. So Russert says, something like, Senator, you went on live TV and relied on what some child told you? And Moynihan responded, Tim, if you can't trust a kid in a Yankee hat, who can you trust? The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that little children are sponges without guile, and how their parents live can determine to what these children ultimately dedicate themselves. Leon Cass, commenting on the Akedah, put it this way, Truth be told, all fathers devote, that is, sacrifice their sons, to some god or other, to mammon or moloch, to honor or money, pleasure or power, or worse, to no god at all. True, they do so less visibly and less concentratedly, but they do so willy-nilly through the things they teach and respect in their own homes. They intend that the entire life of the sons be spent in service to their own ideals or idols, and in this sense, they do indeed spend the life of the children. But a true father will devote his son to and will self-consciously and knowingly initiate him into only the righteous and godly ways. By showing his willingness to sacrifice what is his for what is right and good, he also puts his son on the proper road for his own adulthood, the true test of the good father. In this sense, at least, he is ever willing to part with his son as his son, recognizing him as was Isaac and as are indeed all children, as a gift and a blessing from God. End quote. Ours is an age that protectively lavishes love on children. Yet as Senator Ben Sass has noted, this has also produced a generation of perpetual adolescence, a result of the, quote, creature comforts to which our children are accustomed, our reluctance to expose young people to the demand of real work, and the hostage-taking hold that computers and mobile devices have on adolescent attention, end quote. Perhaps what we need is less embracing and more blessing, less possession, more consecration. We must consider whether our children are extensions of ourselves or given to us in sacred trust. One of the greatest rabbinical commentaries on the sacrifice of Isaac was penned by a rabbi in a letter to a Roman Catholic priest 
the rabbi's words allowing us to understand that the teaching of the Akedah lives today, every Sabbath Eve in so many Jewish homes, as parents reveal in reverence and love that the ability to bless our children is itself the greatest blessing of all. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.